Okay, well, again, welcome to uh, Hope Community Church, Lower Town. Uh, those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian, the uh, pastor uh, here at Lower Town. And so if you're checking us out live or just checking us out um, in the future, uh, just uh, uh, checking out Hope Lower Town or just kicking the tires of Christianity, whatever that may be, glad you're able to join us. Um, just a quick word. This is our actually our last week in the Psalms. So it's been uh, fun for me. I've, I've enjoyed it. I've never really preached through a lot of the Psalms before. And so it's just been um, a joy for me. Um, so that we'll probably do again uh, in, in the future, but just be able to take a few Psalms here and there. So I just want to give you a heads up what we're going to be doing next. Um, uh, we are actually jumping into Second Peter, which will be uh, fun. It's another book that I have never uh, preached through. So looking forward to that. It's just a couple, it's just a really short, really short book. So looking forward to being able to uh, preach through that as well. I do want to say a quick word about reopening. Um, and I'm going to, and all this, all I'm going to say is I'm going to talk more about this at the end, simply because I know people kind of trickle in. Um, and so just, just, uh, let me, let me preach and then we'll talk a little bit more about, uh, what that looks like to reopen. And if, and if you're not even part of lower town, feel free to leave as I'm kind of making that announcement and that kind of stuff. So anyways, um, have you ever built anything before? Uh, I know it might sound like a, a weird question, but, uh, you know, not like Legos. I guess that would technically count as building something or a model plane or something like that. I used to do the model stuff when I was a little kid. I actually used to tape them to my ceiling. I had like a whole scene uh, in my room when I was a little kid. Uh, when I was a little kid, I was probably like in junior high. Um, anyways, I'm not much of a builder. Uh, I, I try to work on things. I try to build things, but I'm actually better at destroying things. I have actually had two jobs where it was actually to, uh, you know, I was at work for like a demolition company for one summer. Another company was um, a mold removal uh, company where you're just ripping stuff out down to the studs, cleaning things out that I can do putting it back together better than it was before. That's not so much something that I'm good at. Uh, my grandfather um, Ray Silver, he was a very good Mason. And matter of fact, if you just Google Silver Bros, uh, it's actually a company that's still in existence in, in Hoopston, Illinois. My um, grandpa wasn't technically part of, of the company, uh, but his brothers were. Um, and uh, anyways, they my, my grandpa pretty much built this camp. Last week I was talking about camp insurance um, and all my memories from that. And I just have these vivid memories of my grandfather uh, mixing concrete in a, in a wheelbarrow, um, and, and laying a plumb line. I don't even know if that's what it's called, but, you know, setting these, these, these blocks together to, to build these buildings that, that they did at this camp. And, um, that's just something I'm, I'm not, I'm not good at. I know I've got a friend, uh, Mark Madero. He's in my small group. You guys know, probably know Mark, a lot of you do. And, and he builds, he builds huge buildings uh, all over the country, really. But now he's uh, working just in Minneapolis and St. Paul, but uh, builds these massive, um, you know, seven story apartment buildings and, and, and condos and things like that. And there's something about building, right? And, I, and so today we're going to be looking specifically at, at a cornerstone um, in the scriptures and looking at specifically within Psalm 118. And so I, I've titled this Psalm uh, Stumbling Stone. And yet it could be several other of my alliterations of, of a savoring stone, a, a saving stone, a sacrificing stone. Um, and yet I chose stumbling stone because that's the that's the language that we actually find in our scriptures. The other ones uh, were mine. One of them is a little bit of a stretch, but we'll we'll talk about that in a minute. 
Um, so before I jump into Psalm 118, again, I just want to give a little bit of context. And uh, the context behind Psalm 118 is just, again, it's a Psalm of David. So King David is writing this. It's a messianic Psalm. And so even from within a Jewish culture and background, they would say, uh, yeah, this, this is talking about the Messiah and who the Messiah is going to be and what he's going to be like. Um, and it's, and it's uh, again, surrounding that kind of victory with the Ark of the Covenant being brought back um, into Jerusalem. And it's just kind of one of those of just this, this song of victory, uh, cry of victory of God winning uh, the battles. Um, and, and then, though, there's these subtle things in here about the Messiah and what's wrapped up around that. And so while David is describing events and personal things around him, there's things that he is writing down that I, I think he understood um, because there's many times within King David's Psalms that that you go, wow, dude, you're getting ahead of yourself. And I mentioned that the last couple of weeks that he just... He gets it and he understands that the Messiah is going to be something different than what we expect. He's going to be God. He's going to be greater than the king. He's going to be my Lord and my God. Uh, that he is, is, uh, his sacrifice is going to be greater than the blood of bulls. Who cares about that? Right. It, there's something in so that, that happens here. And so when we look at these passages, and the New Testament is going to expound on this a lot, um, as we're going to see. Um, but the New Testament helps us interpret the Old Testament. And so we can look at a verse like this. This is the idea. It's called progressive revelation. And so if we start with an idea in Genesis and we talk about the Messiah, what do we understand about the Messiah in Genesis? Not a whole lot, right? We can get to Genesis 3.15 and we can understand that, that he is going to crush the head of the serpent and the serpent's going to bruise his heel What's that mean? It's it's kind of cryptic. What what's going to happen there? But but as the scriptures are being written, we get a greater understanding of the Messiah until we get to the end of the Revelation and what that's going to look like and all that's going to entail. So we take all the information from the New Testament. And we go, oh, that's what's going on here. And and it's not just like modern day theologians or pastors saying, oh, that's what that text means. The New Testament does that with the Old Testament. And so even within the Psalm 118, it's quoted a bunch of times by Jesus, by Peter, a few times by Paul, by Luke. Well, it's Luke quoting Peter, who's quoting David. Um, and so a uh, little inception moment, and then I get to quote them too. It's kind of weird. Um, that's what happens. Okay, so so these are real events, and yet the New Testament help us helps us interpret the old. And again, the old helps us interpret the new. So what I'm going to do, it's a little bit of a longer uh, psalm. So what I'm going to do is read through, uh, but make some comments as I'm reading it. And then we're going to go back and really hone in on, the, on one particular verse for the rest of the time. So Psalm 118 says this, starting at verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. And that might ring a bell of a song. That's what one of the a newer song that uh, I wasn't allowed to sing growing up. Um, but give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Um, his love endures. Let, the, let Israel say his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his love endures forever. 
When I was hard-pressed, I cried to the Lord, and he brought me into a spacious place. This is the exact same language as what we looked at last week in Psalm 4, that I'm, I'm being encroached upon by my enemies, and he pushes them back. He gets them away from me. He gives me breathing room, right? If you've ever had uh, children, or for me even, I have a, a gold retriever. Holy cow, I love that dog, but I give me some space, right, to just back up, back up. I just need to breathe right now. Um, Verse six, the Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? What a great line. Right? I think of just when, when we look at the world around us and what David's saying here, right? They could kill me. I mean, I, this, I, like worst case scenario that I could die. The Apostle Paul says that, right? For me to live is Christ. For me to die is gain, right? What, what can a mere mortal, you mere mortal, what can you do to me? Verse seven, the Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And I was just thinking, what a good word even for today, right? Just with the political climate that's going on in our society that yes, yes, I think politics matter. Are, are they going to fix our problems? No, not at all. What's going to fix the problem is Jesus is trusting in the Lord. Right? Does that mean that we we don't get involved in politics? No, not at all. Right? I think that we should be. I think that we should be doing our best and, and using our rights as as Christians and as American citizens to let our kingdom mindedness influence how uh, we vote and how and what we do to talk about certain things. But what I appreciate about this is David is king, and he's saying I'm gonna I'm gonna trust God over even my political advisors right now. Um, which is just, I think, significant. Okay, then he's going to shift here, though. And he says this in verse 10, all the nations surround me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They surround me on every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They swarmed around me like bees, but they were consumed as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them down. So three different times, right? Again, that repetition, he's trying to make a point here. In the name of the Lord, I cut them down. Now we could easily maybe not easily, inappropriately try to take these and say, See, this is what we got to do. We got to make America, we got to, we got to, sorry, we got to do what we got to do to, to fix America. And we need to make it a Christian nation again and all these different things. What David is saying here is not about nationalism. This is not about national pride. Um, this is not about expansion um, of their territories or all those things. This is to preserve salvation. Uh-oh. It said my streaming stopped, but it looks like people are still there. So I'm going to, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. All right. I think maybe, maybe I got censored by somebody here. I'm going to maybe get a little too political. Um, right. But this is not, this is not, uh, again, this is, this is, uh, I just lost my train of thought. Oh yeah. This is not about nationalism though. Again, Israel was God's way of saying, yes, I want to reveal who I am to all nations, all nations, not just Israel, but God used Israel as an avenue. And so when we have these, these people and in the, in these, these uh, nations that are just wicked, I mean, wicked pagan, that he says, yeah, no, they got to go. I want them to know about, about my God. This is, this is not the United States. And so let's not read that into the text. That's, that's eisegesis. And that's bad. Verse 13, I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defense, and he has become my salvation. 
Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things, right? And again, even within trying to look at this, this of, of the surrounding of what's happening, the victories and the of the war and, and different things that are going on, he's saying, yeah, the people fought the battle, but it's God who did it. Um, God fixed this. Angel and I have been watching the uh, the last dance, and it's almost like uh, oh, now I'm drawing a blank on the on the GM's name. Um, and but every time it's like, yeah, the players are good, but man, it's the it's the organization. It's the organization that does it. But that's actually right here, right? That he's saying, hey, it's not the not the warriors that are winning the battles here. But we went through Nehemiah. It's the same way. It's like, no, man, God, God did this thing. Verse seventeen. I will not die, but live, and I will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of the righteous, and I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give thanks to you, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. Okay, so he's saying this is the gate. What is the gate? Okay, God is going to give me salvation. Again, David, you're getting ahead of yourself, man. But then he says this, this is the gate. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And it's this language, this cornerstone of building that is actually going to be used in multiple other books, Old Testament and New Testament. This idea of a cornerstone, a chief cornerstone. Isaiah uses the same language, which we'll get to in a minute, um, and not even actually going to look at Isaiah, but looking at Peter when he quotes both of these. Verse 23, the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So he, someone rejects this cornerstone, and it becomes the chief cornerstone, and it says the Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. David, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? How do you know all this stuff? The Lord has done it to this very day. Let us rejoice and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and from the house, Lord, we will bless you. For the Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us with bows in hand, bows, bows, you know, like tree bows, you know, like a, uh, join in the festival procession up to the horns of the altar. The altar um, in the tabernacle and in the temple and the outer courts, uh, in the court of the Gentiles even, but even inside in the um, the uh outer courts of the temple and the, and the sanctuary, there was a, a big altar and that's where they would do all their burnt sacrifices. And it was a square, but on the, on the corners, there were horns. That's, that's what this is talking about here. Um, you are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. So that's Psalm 118. Okay. So there's, again, there's a lot more that could be said, but I really just want to hone in on Psalm uh, 118 verse 22. And the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is actually a, a, a verse that is quoted by Jesus and all, all the synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, it's going to be quoted by Peter and Paul. And so we want to, I want to look at that this morning. And what is the significance of the fact that David is talking about who the Messiah is and what is that little verse? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What's the significance of that for us? And what's the significance of that, not just for us as a people or as a as an ethnicity or as Gentiles or what, what does that mean for me today? Like today, how can I rest in the fact that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? 
All right. So I want to start and look at a savored stone. Um, this initially was a precious stone, and I, I even was Googling what's a synonym for precious, and there was no S words, but savored to me did that. There was actually a, a book written by John Piper, and I forgot the name of the book, but I had like almost had the line memorized is that when you see something as beautiful, you you treasure it. That is, you value it. You you savor that thing. You want to hold on to it with all you have. And obviously, he's trying to make the point that this is Jesus. He's beautiful. We should savor Jesus and who he is. So I want to look at First Peter chapter two. I know that I preached through this last year, um, and so I'm not going to you know belabor this point and get down to little details of the and the nuances of the language, but. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, um, the Apostle Paul is going to, or excuse me, Peter is going to say this, as you come to him, that is Jesus, and he calls him the living stone, which again is ironic because Peter's name is the rock, Petros, and he's saying, as you come to Jesus, the, the living rock, right? This is, this is the guy that you need to put your faith in. Then he says this, rejected by human hands, sorry, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You can hear the language that he's taking here from the psalm. He says, you also, you, church, of all nations, of all ethnicities, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, right? That we have this chief cornerstone, that it's going to be squared and it's going to be leveled and then every other stone is going to be put into that and it's going to make this beautiful mosaic of different shapes and colors of stones that all maintain their own individual identity but being built up together into a spiritual house he's rejecting the notion that this is about one ethnic group and again we talked about this last year and we've been saying that i hope every a lot. This isn't about ancestry. This isn't about bloodlines. This is about being founded and built up on Christ, the living stone. And he says, and then um, built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, that we're all priests now, offering spiritual sacrifices, making doing something that's difficult and hard, but again, I'm actually able to offer this now, not because it's just some good work and, and God will love me more because I do this thing. How? I can offer now spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, that God will accept my sacrifice. How? Through Jesus Christ. For in scripture, it says, see, and then now he's going to quote Isaiah 28 here. It says, see, I lay a stone in Zion or in Jerusalem, a chosen and a precious cornerstone. And the one who puts his trust in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, we can savor it. It's such a beautiful thing that we get to put our faith and trust in. In Jesus, and we look at that and we go, yes! And it's as simple as just believing. And you see something as beautiful, you treasure it. That is, you savor it. But unfortunately, that's not only the case with this stone. It's also a stumbling stone. 
He says, yeah, now to you who believe this stone is precious, beautiful. But, and he almost kind of goes uh, Newton's third law of uh, something. I don't know, Newton's third law. Is this the third law? The third law of Newton. Uh, that to every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. But there's this cornerstone, and there's no neutral ground here. You can't just be like, eh, you know, that cornerstone, it's all right. It's all right, I dig it. No. It's either precious or it's a stumbling stone. Those are the options. He says, but to those who do not believe, and then what I, what I, what I appreciate about Peter here is Peter's saying, I'm not just going to use my own language here. He's like, yeah, I'm an apostle. I know what I'm talking about. I have the authority of Jesus to preach the word of God and to teach all that he has commanded me and baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I saw the risen Savior, but I'm not just going to give you my words. I'm actually going to go old school on you and tell you this is what this is about. But there's something about believing the stone or not believing in the stone that is significantly important. But to those who do not believe, and here's where he's going to go and quote Psalm 118, the stone the builder has rejected has become the cornerstone. And going back to Isaiah, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. But then he has this phrase, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is a a choice, and then it says, which is also what they were destined for. Right? So what is he talking about predestination? Were they predetermined and predisposed to reject Jesus? I don't think that's what he's getting at. Now, there's part of me as, a, as someone who's reformed who, yeah, yes, I believe that. And yet, look at just the verses right above it. And even within the same verse, they disobeyed. We believed but to those who do not believe, it's their choice. These are our choices, believing, not believing, receiving, rejecting, obeying, disobeying. Our choices as a human being have significant, significant significance, eternal significance. Did I say significant, significant significance? I think I did. <laughs> I talk for a, a living. This is our choice. But it has eternal significance or eternal consequence. This is our choice. And then we can even look at the, 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 the crux, like the pinnacle of Reformed theology of Romans chapter 9, 30 through 33. And what does the Apostle Paul say? And again, he's going to jump right into the same. He's going to quote the same passages here. What shall we say then? That Gentiles, all other nations who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. Okay, remember that righteousness. We looked at this last week of a right justice, jam it together, righteousness that we have fallen short of God's righteousness, but we've obtained righteousness by faith, by faith in Christ, through Christ. But that Israel who pursued the law led to righteousness that, 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 that did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? He says, why? And he answers it. Here's, here's why Israel did not succeed in finding righteousness through the law, because they did not pursue it by faith. It's about faith. It's about faith in the cornerstone. It's about faith in God and his promises. But as if it were based on works. 
They worked their fingers down to the bone and nothing they did could ever atone. It's my story. It's all of our stories. It's by faith. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Well, he see, he just used the same word twice in the same sentence. It's not that crazy. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And again, here it is. But whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I want to move along and look at the next point of a saving stone. This is Acts chapter 4, 8 through 12. See, in 1 Peter, Peter is, um, is, is making the call to us, to the church. 1 Peter is written to a Gentile church, the, the, the Gentiles who are in dispersion in Asia Minor. And he's saying, this is what we need to put our, this is what we need to continue to put our trust in. But in first, or sorry, in Acts chapter 4, he's going he's gonna to make the appeal. You got to believe in this stone. You got to believe in Jesus. There is no other name. So a little bit of context, Peter just heals somebody miraculously. There's some guy, lame guy, and he says, be healed in the name of Jesus Christ. He gets up and he's healed. And then they're like, hey, man, right? The, the Jewish leaders get together and like, how did you do that? Yeah, well, it's not Jesus because remember, he dead. he's dead. He was a false prophet. Um, he's, he's gone now. Uh, so what, what's going on here? So in verse 8 in Acts chapter 4, it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, and that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected. All right, so now he's actually changing it. Right? He's actually changing the original text that said the stone the builders rejected. Now he's saying, you're the builders. You rejected him. The stone which you builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You rejected the Messiah. You rejected Jesus. And now he's become that. This is the Messiah. And then he says, verse 12, to everyone who's listening, salvation is found in no one else or nothing else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The last point um, is a sacrificial stone. And I want to look at the words of Jesus himself as he references and talks about himself as the cornerstone. This is Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 19. This is also in Matthew and Mark. Um, Luke just kind of fills out these stories a little bit more. So that's why I'm, I'm reading from Luke. Starting verse 9 of Luke 20 says, He went on to tell the people this parable. Okay, so now there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a significant one thing that Jesus is trying to get across in, in, in any parable. One, one thing, one truth that he's trying to get across. And so if you, if you try to get too nitpicky within parables and fill in all the blanks, things can get a little confusing. Okay, so what is the one thing that Jesus is trying to teach in this parable? He said, a man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, went away for a long time, and at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenant so that they would give him some of the fruit 
of the vineyard, right? This, this still happens today. I think it's called a crop share or something, right? Where uh, you've got a farmer who owns a large piece of land, but he maybe isn't a farmer. Maybe he just owns the land. He inherited the land or he just doesn't have the machinery or the capital to, to farm it. Um, then what he does is he rents it out to people and then they farm it, but in, and then they give him a pay, right? Either they pay him in cash or they say, hey, here are a portion of my crops and you can do with them whatever you want. My stepdad does this. They've got land, someone else farms it. He takes the corn and the grain and he feeds his cows with it. I mean, it's just, that's what happens. What's going on here, okay? Uh, where am I at? Uh, okay, but the tenants, oh yeah, okay. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, but the tenants, the ones who are renting the land, beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one was also beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. Then he sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love, and perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. All right, let's go back. Let's try to fill in these blanks, not making it too complicated. But what Jesus is saying, he's not pulling his punches here, right? He's Mike Tyson, even in his 50s, just, uh, he's not pulling his punches. He's telling it like it is. This is who I am. I got a little into that Mike Tyson. I'm so pumped about that. The owner of the vineyard, that's God. It's God the Father. God the Father is the owner of the vineyard. And then he goes and he gives that vineyard to people. That's Israel. The tenants are the Israelites. And then he sends one of his servants to go to them. These are the prophets. The prophets come and he says, hey, this is the word of the Lord. And they're, they're, they're kicked out of the camp. They're, they're ashamed, right? The prophets are just not loved by the Israelites. So he says, what, what am I going to do? Right? The, my tenants, the Israelites, they're just not listening to me. I know what I will do. I will send my son whom I love, and they will respect him. That's not what happens. The Israelites kill him. Right? Okay. So they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Uh, and, and then, sorry, uh, verse 15, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Okay, so now what is God the Father the owner of the vineyard going to do to them says he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now the vineyard language here is very significant. It's used a lot in the old Testament, but the vineyard a lot of times references Israel. All right. So, so in Psalm 80, it says that um, there's a transplanted vine from Egypt and we're going to drive out the nations and we're going to, we're going to plant this vineyard in this land in this new land. And there's going to be, you know, new wine and all these, all these different references that, right? So, so Old Testament references of the vineyard in the Old Testament is Israel. So what did the owner of this vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Whoa, right? I mean, imagine you're an Israelite. Imagine you're Jewish and you're going, no, man, we, this is our vineyard, right? We're God's chosen people. And Jesus now tells a parable and says, oh, no, no, he's actually going to give it to somebody else. And when the people heard this, they said, God forbid, moiganito in Greek. This is, a, this is the most intense, strong language of just, 
No. <laughs> so that's what I do when I get upset. And then 17, Jesus looks at them directly. Jesus looks directly at them and asked, what then is the meaning of that which was written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You've rejected me. You've rejected your Messiah. And I am becoming the key, chief cornerstone, not just for one ethnicity. It's never been about that. It's for all people. In verse 18, everyone who falls in that stone will be broken to pieces and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Again, Jesus is not pulling his punches. He's saying, I am the good news. But if you reject me, this is not going to end well. Verse 19, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately, but because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, they were afraid of the people. You see, the stone is precious. The stone is precious to those who believe, but it is an offense to those who do not believe. But church, finishing up 1 Peter 4, 2, uh, 9 through 10, Church, but you, you're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation because of what Jesus, the chief cornerstone, did. That he was knowingly going to be rejected by his own people, betrayed by them, murdered by them, so that we can be included in that story and a holy nation, God's special possession, that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Because once we were not a people, but now we are a people of God. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy through Christ. So in conclusion, how do you view this stone? How do you view Jesus? And, and I mean this specifically here, the way that Peter does in Acts. Do you believe? Because when you believe in Jesus for salvation, it's beautiful. It's precious. It's the most precious thing in the world. It's the most valuable thing in the world. Or you can reject and not believe, and he's offensive. I mean, what I just said offends so many people. That there's no other name under heaven and earth by which man can be saved? That is extremely offensive, unless you believe. Then it's quite encouraging. <laughs> but I think I have the liberty to say it's more than this. Because in light of the gospel, I am in Christ. I am good. We had that great exchange. We had that that uh, uh, Newton's third law happened, that I committed sin and Jesus died for my sin. And so I inherit his blessing, but that punishment still has to go out and it's on Christ. Yes. And because of that position, because of the good news, I now have to apply that gospel to my life moment by moment. So I want to plead with you, church, as I have pleaded with myself this week, as I have been convicted of sin in my own heart and my own life this week, do I ever look at Jesus with contempt? 
Do I ever stumble over Jesus? Do I ever look at him and say, man, I want that thing. You kind of get in the way. What, fill in the blank. Could be job. It could be could be sex. It could be money. It could be fame. It could be pride. I mean, fill in the blank. And if Jesus wasn't in the picture, I could just go get that thing. I could just go do that thing. Do we look at him with contempt? Or do we look at him as precious and beautiful? As the author and the finisher of our faith. And that because my faith is in him, that for me to live is Christ. And how I can make spiritual sacrifices that God can accept through Christ. So will you confess your sins with me? Will you lament with me over our own brokenness, over our own weakness? And live moment by moment looking at Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone who died for our sins. He is so precious. Will you bow and pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you sent your son whom you love to die for us, to pay for my sins, to be a propitiation, to make the payment that I could not pay for my sin and redeem me, purchase me back from the depths of hell and the depths of my own sin and darkness and decay. And not just freed me. You didn't just free me from my slavery to sin. You sat me down at your table. You call me your son. You call your son, Jesus Christ, my brother. That... <laughs> That is beautiful. That is precious. And would you help all of us to savor that and see that every time we decide to choose sin over Christ, every time we try, try to skirt around what we know and how we want to live and view Christ as precious, more precious than that thing that we want, that he would satisfy our souls that we would love the creator more than the creation. So God, as we enter into a time of communion, will you be honored and glorified as we remember what it is that chief cornerstone did for us, that he knowingly, willingly died for our sin so that you could receive the honor and the glory forever and ever. Amen.